All right, good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe Community Church. We want to welcome you, and we're glad you're here to worship with us today. We've been making our way through the book of 2 Samuel. So if you could open your Bibles, let's just get right to it. 2 Samuel. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's right after 1 Samuel. Um, maybe not that helpful, but it's sort of the beginning-ish of the Bible. 2 Samuel, we're in chapter 12, and uh, we've been going through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse, um, and really we could just call it 2 Samuel, but we've been calling this series King of Kings because of how it points us not just to David as the king, but also to David's king, who is God himself. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, let me uh, follow my own instructions here and turn there, 2 Samuel 12. Like last week, we have a long passage. In fact, this week's passage is even longer than last week. So kind of like what we did last time, and because the story is a continuation, it's a two-parter kind of, and also because it it might be familiar to a lot of you, we're going to do the same thing as last time. So we're not going to read the whole thing up front. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to read it gradually and let it unfold for us as we go along. Hopefully, you can hear the story. Uh, maybe like you were hearing it from the first time a little bit. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we know, God, that the only reason we are here is because you sent your only son. The only reason we are here is because you loved this sinful and fallen world, and you sent him God, to die for us. And Lord, we know, God, that even though we're deserving of condemnation, you sent your Son not to condemn the world and to, and to condemn us, but to save us. Father, as we look to your word this afternoon and as we look into the mirror of what your word is, and as we see ourselves and we see our own sin and guilt and shame, Maybe as we look to your word and we feel condemned, and rightly so. Father, I pray, I pray, God, for each and every person here, for myself, that the conviction of your word will not drive us to despair, but to Christ. God, only you can do that in our hearts. Only you can change us. Only you can open up our eyes and open up our ears. So we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. We look to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had your failures thrown in your face? Maybe it was an old thing from your past, but you got into an argument with your spouse and then it just came up. Something you thought was forgiven and forgotten long ago, but all the old wounds are afresh now. Maybe someone you looked up to blindsided you with crushing criticism. You followed this person everywhere and then they just laid it right on you thick. Or maybe you do this to yourself. I know a lot of people who replay their lowlights over and over again. They just self-condemn, right? They just drown in their own misery. Or maybe it's literal. Have you ever had your failures thrown in your face? I was reading a story about the end of World War II. When the war ended, a German soldier found himself far from home in Scotland. Okay, he was in a prison camp, prison 22 to be precise, 
And the war had just ended, but he knew his people had lost, his country was in ruins, and his sleep was overrun by these nightmares of war, of being on the battlefield. But for him, the worst really was the photos that were on the wall. See, in Prison 22, what the Allies had done is they had taken photographs from uh, Belsen. Wait, did I say that right? Yeah, Belsen and Auschwitz, some of the worst of the concentration camps. And they had posted these photos without comment around the prisoner camp. They wanted these German soldiers to be confronted with the truth of the side that they had fought on. And this one soldier, his name was Jürgen, he was devastated by this. Was this what he had fought for? He felt like he could see his own reflection in the eyes of the victims. He honestly, he felt evil. More than the loss of his friends uh, in battle or the destruction and distance of his homeland, the message that those pictures preached to him, the utter moral failure thrown in his face that he was a Nazi soldier, the shame and guilt just erupted in his heart like a geyser, threatening to drown him in despair. Now, maybe you're not a captured soldier of the Third Reich, not even close, I would hope. But who here hasn't had to deal with the fallout of something that you've done? Maybe there's a sin from your past that you wear like a scarlet letter. Everywhere you go, it follows you. When people find out about it, especially in church and in religious circles, they talk to you differently. They treat you a little differently. Maybe there's a secret you're struggling with right now. Something that no one knows, but you can't shake the thought that God does. You can't shake the thought that someone's going to find out. And especially after last week, you're just questioning everything. Can I even be a Christian if I struggle with this? Is it possible to have a relationship with God? Will I ever be free? Or maybe you're living with something, uh, a marriage that isn't what it should be, or a child that's struggling, or maybe some kind of ongoing conflict with someone in your life, someone close to you, and you ask yourself, could I have done something differently? What if I had said something else? Am I being punished? I wish I could just go back and do it different. And then you come to church on a Sunday, and at Zoe, we're not afraid to preach on sin, okay? And the books of Samuel especially have given us ample opportunity to talk about it. I mean, these passages, you thought First Samuel was crazy. Second Samuel is filled with killers. I mean, these scriptures, they're razor sharp. They cut and they cut deep. So maybe you're here and you're like, okay, all right, I've heard you week after week after week. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I know I struggle. But now what? What happens after all these things in my past, the things that I carry? And that's our passage today. The books of Sam, uh, Samuel, uh, first and second, have set forward for us a hero and built him up before our very eyes, really. If you've been with us throughout this entire series, you've seen him, the shepherd boy with faith to slay a giant, the warrior with the honor to weep, even when his enemies fall, the king after God's own heart. It builds him up right in front of us, and then last chapter we saw it, it pulled the rug out from under us. We see that even David can do the worst of things. He egregiously broke the most obvious laws. He committed adultery, not just with a random woman, that would be bad enough, but he stole the wife of one of his most loyal subjects, a friend really better than you could ask for. 
And then to cover it up, he tried deceit and manipulation. When that didn't work, he had the husband killed. I mean, Saul, the king before David, never did anything so utterly selfish, so callously heartless. And then chapter 11, it ended with a cliffhanger. David, he took all these pains to cover up what he did. And it seems like he got away with it until the very last sentence where it tells us that God has seen it all and he is not pleased. And it's here we pick up in 2 Samuel 12. The sermon will have three points, as usual. We'll break down the text into three parts, three kind of headings under which we'll kind of break it down. First, the rebuke, the rebuke, which is about acknowledging that God is a fully righteous God. Verse one, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Stop there. Okay, pay attention to how the passage starts. God sends All right, last chapter, David, he was the one doing the sending. Do you remember? He sent Joab off to war, but he stayed at home. He sent people to find out about Bathsheba. And even though he found out who she was, he shouldn't have taken her. He sent servants to bring her back to the palace. And then he sent Uriah off to his own death. He put the death note in Uriah's own hand to take to Joab. But here God takes center stage. In the last chapter, God didn't even appear until the final sentence. But here, this chapter starts with God. Like in a game of chess, David has made his move. He's made his moves. But here, it's God's turn. And what God does is send none other than Nathan the prophet. The very same Nathan who delivered the promise of God's everlasting blessing to David's house back in chapter 7. But this time... He's here for a different purpose, a purpose which isn't immediately obvious because if you look at the rest of verse one, pick it up. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. He starts with a story. Keep reading. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Verse four. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan shows up at the royal palace, and it's really a precarious situation if you think about it for a second. David has just shown that he's capable of killing someone who is loyal to him, a loyal servant, to cover up his tracks. Just because Nathan is a prophet doesn't mean that Nathan is automatically safe. And yet, Nathan has no choice. He's on a mission from God. What did the end of chapter 11 say? It says that God saw everything. Literally in the Hebrew, it's more like God saw what David did, and it was evil in his eyes. Clearly, God isn't going to let it slide. But when he sends Nathan into this dangerous situation, he doesn't send him in the way that we might think, with the fire and brimstone uh, sermon that we might expect from an Old Testament prophet, at least not at first. He doesn't allow it to even look like a Nathan versus David situation. Instead, he sends Nathan with this story about a guy with a sheep And in doing so, he sidesteps his defenses. Now, understand what happened in the story. There's two guys, two men, one with everything, one with just one thing. And this poor man who only had one thing, he has this lamb that he loves more than even a family pet. It says it was like a daughter to him. He bought this lamb. He raised it in the house. He would feed it personally. 
And then one day a traveler shows up at the rich man's door. Instead of offering one of his own lambs for hospitality's sake, he takes the poor man's one beloved lamb, slaughters it, and serves it. That's the story. Now, let me ask you a question. It's been kind of a lot of me just talking and talking, and there's going to be more of that. But let me ask you a question to think about. What do you make of this story? It's just presented without comment. He shows up to the palace. He comes before the king. He seeks an audience. He has a word from the Lord. But instead of saying, thus says the Lord, Nathan says, I got a story for you. Listen to this. At face value, what do you think of it? How does it make you feel? Just sit with it for a moment. I mean, there are a lot of ways that we could take the story that Nathan tells from apathy, maybe like, who cares, just some random story, it's just a sheep, to astonishment, why is he talking about this, to anger. But understand that the story is designed to force some kind of reaction. This is the genius of it, and this reaction, whatever it is, is instructive. Because, okay, look at how David reacts. Verse 5. Then David's anger was kindled, greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. It's crazy how we lie to ourselves, isn't it? A few observations. One, this isn't an act. David really is upset by this news. And this makes sense because as the king, sometimes he would have to decide things. He would have to judge and preside over situations. You remember uh, in the Bible when Solomon, his son, is king. Two women bring forth this one baby and they both say that it's their kid and Solomon has to decide. He has to give justice in the situation. So David was probably used to making moral judgments about being the one that people ask, what should we do? What is right? What does God want? So a situation is brought up to David, and immediately, even if it's true or not, he jumps into judge mode, and he declares with righteous indignation that this man deserves to die. Now, a lot of commentators, they like to break this apart. They're kind of, you know, people who are Bible scholars, Bible nerds even, and they'll say technically he doesn't, and this is true. The Old Testament talks about how there are certain sins which are capital offenses. Stealing someone's lamb, their only lamb, their only beloved lamb, it's messed up, but it's not a death penalty sin. But David isn't going for that. He says he shall restore it fourfold. He knows that this is an overreaction, but the reason why he says it is because to him, it's that repulsive. And in some senses, you look at this and you say, this is David, right? This is the man after God's own heart where he looks at something that is so utterly selfish, so heartlessly callous, and it bothers him a lot. He gets to the heart of the matter. It's, it's not just because he did this thing, but that this man had what? No pity. He had no compassion. David sees the rich man's sin with crystal clarity, and it really, really bothers him. And oh, how ironic this is, because verse 7, the most famous words in this chapter, Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's you. You know, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century was Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great doctor. He was a medical doctor who became a preacher, and he was a man who was very serious about theology. 
Okay, he didn't mess around. He was serious about the preaching of God's word. In fact, he was just a serious guy. He had this gravity about him. They said that when he walked up to the pulpit to preach, even before he said anything, he just had this seriousness about him. Like he cared about God that much that some people would tear up just watching his face. Kind of like the effect that I have, right? You guys kind of get it. Um, but anyway, it's like the exact opposite of what I just said. But anyway, there's an interesting encounter that he had. And you got to know who he is to kind of understand this encounter rightly. But he had a chance to meet with an older pastor when he was a little bit younger. This pastor was known as the Canadian Spurgeon. And this pastor really cared about the truth also. He had similar theology, similar convictions. His name was T.T. Shields. And Shields, right, he kind of felt like Lloyd-Jones and him were on the same team. But Lloyd-Jones, he kind of felt that Shields had gone astray a little bit. Not in doctrine, not in theology, not in his convictions about the word per se. Rather, he felt like Shields had made everything in his life and ministry polemical. You guys know what that is? Polemics? Polemics is about engaging in controversy and debate. Okay, it's about verbal warfare. It's about looking at all the things that are wrong and calling them out. And sometimes you need to do it. Lloyd-Jones did this a lot, but he felt like Shields had made everything about this. So he prayed about it. Okay, if I have a chance to talk to him about it, what should I say? He's older than me. Will he take it the wrong way? But he felt like what Shields had been doing, denouncing other denominations all the time, quote, making mincemeat of liberals, that was kind of the the meat of his sermon. He felt like it wasn't good. So he prayed, and with boldness, he decided, if there was an opportunity, I'm going to bring it up. So they're talking, and Shields is like, oh, have you heard about how whack, okay, this is 100 years ago, they didn't talk this way, but how whack these other people are in seven. He's like, actually, I haven't. He's like, have you read this blog? And he's like, I don't read that blog. And they started talking, and Shields said, well, you know, the type of approach that I have calling out error, it really grows and furthers the ministry. And Lloyd-Jones said, you know, if there's a dogfight, a crowd always gathers. People feel like they're right, and they like that feeling. They like feeling that others are wrong. But he said, look, I'm not saying that it's all wrong, But the church needs preachers who will preach not just against what's wrong out there, but also what's wrong in here. See, what we see here in the first part of this chapter is that David's righteousness radar, it wasn't turned off. It wasn't turned off. It's not that he suddenly forgot there was such a thing as right and wrong. It wasn't off. Rather, it was turned away. He was turned away from his own heart and turned toward other people, including this fictional rich man. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever judged someone harshly? Or have you ever judged someone at all? If you have, what was going on in here when that happened? You know, the frightening thing you may have discovered is that not only is it not that hard, but it feels kind of good. It's not hard to see the immaturity in your spouse if you're looking for it. It's not hard to be let down by the lack of love or godliness or whatever in church, especially if the standard is perfection. It's not hard to allow the sins of society to really get under our skin, to kindle anger within our own hearts. It's not hard. And when we look at the Bible and we see that how we feel matches up with the scripture, it actually feels good because we're being moral. We're right. We're on God's side. There's just one problem with that. If you put yourself in David's sandals and hear Nathan's words, what does it say? 
Good judgment, David. You are the man. Verse 7, thus says the Lord. This is what we expected to hear, but after all that, this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You're the king of Israel. This is the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. This is where Nathan rebukes David in a way we might have expected at first. But notice it hits differently because of the story. You are that rich man. You have been given so much. God says, I made you king. I saved your life. I would have given you more. The anger that you felt against that guy, understand that it should be directed at you. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Look, it makes as much sense for you to have done what you did as it makes for the rich man of the story to have done what he did. And David, don't you forget, was so quick to condemn that man. But what he did was the same, only magnitudes worse. See, if you look at the actual capital offenses in the Old Testament law, guess what is in there? Not stealing someone else's sheep, as messed up as that is. Adultery and murder. Some of us here, we really do feel the weight of our sin. I know this. I've talked to a lot of you guys. I feel like a lot of, a lot of us do. Our consciences tor- torment us. We feel convicted On Sundays, we read things on our own and we feel like it's speaking to us that is piercing our hearts. But some of us, frankly, we don't. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular here. I'm not trying to single anyone out. I'm just playing the numbers game. But for sure, there are some of us who it's not like our radars for righteousness are broken completely. We see all the sins around us, all the sins in the people around us, all the sins in society, but the sins in us. They don't bother us. We use the Bible as a magnifying glass, right? We're using it to look for all the little specks in everyone else's eyes. And we're not wrong per se. There are specks in every person's eyes. But the Bible doesn't say that the Bible, the word, is a magnifying glass. What does it say? James 1.23. It's not a magnifying glass. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. It's to see ourselves as God sees us. And that's why Nathan started with the story. The anger that sparked and leapt into flame within David's heart. What God is communicating here is that this anger David has is just a small illustration of God's anger at all sin, including, especially including David's own and God's anger at our sin too. So what makes you righteously angry? Think about it for real. When's the last time you were tempted to unload on somebody? or to vent online in some way, or to complain? What sins really get under your skin? What makes you think that's so messed up? I'm not saying you're wrong, necessarily. You probably are right in a lot of ways. Just understand that the sins that you commit, and that I commit, that we commit, the ways in which we personally despise the word of the Lord through our disobedience, God feels the same as we do, but worse. Do you judge the sexually immoral, but then turn around and get violently angry with your family? I've known people like this. 
Do you judge the lazy and indulgent only to work insanely hard for your own little kingdom, your own greed and covetousness? Do you judge the theologically ignorant while you are puffed up with pride? Do you not know that God says that he opposes the proud? God is righteous. And what we see here is that he is holy, truly, impartially so. It doesn't matter if you're David. And this leads to the second point. Do you feel rebuked? Okay, the point was called the rebuke. Don't say I didn't warn you, but we're going to get somewhere with this second. The response. I mean, a nuclear bomb just got dropped on David's head. How is he going to respond? The response, and this point is about accepting that God's judgments are righteous judgments. How do we respond to God? Or how we respond to God, excuse me, says everything about what we actually believe about him. Now look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Remember this, the sword. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Remember it, his wives. David, what did he do? He killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. He didn't own the blade, but he used it. And to use his own words against him, the sword that devoured one shall now devour the others. But then also, David stole the wife of a man close to him. Now someone close to him will steal his wives. Now question, I don't know where you guys are at, what your understanding is, even if you're a Christian or not. So just take the story as it is for you. In terms of what you honestly think, is this fair? Would you say that this is fair? Or to put it maybe in more Christianly spiritual lingo, is God good to do this? I mean, put yourselves in David's sandals for a second. If you're David, how would you respond to this? Understand that David hasn't said anything since Nathan said you are the man. He was so angry, he erupted. He said, this man deserves to die, uh, filled with righteous fury. But then Nathan says, you are the man. I got a message from God for you. And David just has to take it. What is he going to say? Nathan says in verse 12, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Your punishment will be public. And then Nathan steps back and he closes his mouth. And now the ball is in David's court. And in the space between verse 12 and verse 13, Before we read how David responds, I want to remind you of something. It's been a while. Maybe you didn't even go to Zoe back in the day when we talked about this. But in 1 Samuel 15, Saul had a mission. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul had a mission. He needed to fight against the Amalekites. Okay, the king of Israel was supposed to protect his people against their enemies, fight against them, defeat them, and don't take any of the spoils for yourself. Pretty simple. Saul, he fights against them. He defeats them, and what does he do? He takes all the spoils, the best of the spoils, for himself. So Samuel the prophet shows up. A lot of parallels to our passage here. A prophet shows up, and Samuel asks him about it. He says, why didn't you obey God? And what does Saul say? Sorry. No, he says, I did obey God. What do you mean? And Samuel, I mean, this is my own translation of the Hebrew, but he says, do you think I'm an idiot? Like, I see and I hear the sheep and the spoils right over here. So then Saul goes, oh, that, uh, we were going to use that 
It's a sacrifice to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was for God all along. Excuses after excuses after excuses. And Samuel says, God will remove you from king. You don't deserve it if you're going to be this way. God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants obedience. And now, after all this time, after David became king, the man, quote unquote, better than Saul, David has done something far worse than just keeping some animals for himself. And his punishment is greater. It's more humiliating, more ruinous. So what will he say? I mean, this is really the make or break moment after all the make or break moments. David said to Nathan, verse 13, look at this. I have sinned against the Lord. And that's all he says. There's no excuse. There's no, well, I take issue with what you uh, accuse me of. It wasn't me. You know, it was in war. That's why Uriah died. Or why was she bathing where I could see her? She's a temptress. There's no excuse. There's no explanation. Instead, there's just confession, just contrition, and just conviction. See, circle back to the story that Nathan told. Nathan could have just condemned David's actions from the get-go. That would have been right. Instead, he told a story about another person's sin to expose David's heart. Why? Because the goal wasn't just condemnation. God could have just smote David right there, killed him for his sin, removed him from king. The goal wasn't just condemnation. The goal was to get to hear, hopefully, conviction. The goal was conviction. Because what is conviction? Do you guys know? We use this term in church all the time. I was so convicted. That was really convicting. What does conviction mean? Well, if you think about it, like in real life, right, in a court, if someone is convicted, what does that mean? Right, they, they're deliberating. They're talking about, is this person innocent or guilty? You're innocent until proven guilty in America. But if the jury and the judge convict you, that means that now under the law, you are declared guilty. You're guilty. So when we say that we're convicted, when we talk about conviction, really at the heart of it, that's what we're talking about, that we agree, that we understand, that we acknowledge that we actually are guilty. We're agreeing with the rebuke. You know, I remember once um, when I first started preaching and I was still a student in seminary, uh, I preached this message about something. I have no idea what it was. I can't remember. Um, but I was leading, helping to lead the college ministry at Lighthouse. That was the church that planted Zoe, in case you don't know. And I was preaching there and we had this volunteer guy who was new. Um, and after I preached, I thought it was like fine. I didn't think it was like the greatest sermon ever, but it wasn't like the worst. I thought... And he emailed me a critique, okay? And this guy, I, he's a faithful guy, um, but he could be a little abrasive sometimes. So it came off more, uh, or it came off less like constructive criticism and more like destructive criticism. So I was like, okay, what's up with this email? And honestly, I wish I could say that I humbly examined my heart, that all I cared about was kind of the, the truth in it, the kernel of truth and what he had to say. But instead... I felt attacked and annoyed, honestly. And I remember I was talking to Eric, our very own Eric, about it uh, in the church office. And I was kind of being defensive about it. I'm like, what's up with this guy? Should I tell him to not volunteer anymore? And Eric, he can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but basically he said, you know, maybe this wasn't the best way of telling you this. And uh, maybe you actually are right. Because he said, you know, I think you were wrong about this thing you said. And Eric, I was like, I think I'm right. And Eric's like, okay, maybe you are right. But you should still think about what he said. You should still think about what he said. Is there anything true about what he said? See, the crazy thing 
is, you know, I'm this guy who's training to be a pastor. But in the moment, I care more about my own pride than I care about God's truth. See how we respond to correction, to rebuke, to judgment, to criticism. It reveals something about us, right? I think you guys know this. And how we respond to the one doing the correcting, it says something about what we think about that person too. So put it together, how you and I respond to the judgment or rebuke or discipline of God. It says all we need to know about what we really think about God. A lot of us, we say, oh yeah, God's holy for sure. God is righteous. God is just. But then when something happens that we don't like, how do we respond? What does David do? He admits his sin. Now, a lot of people, they can take this step. They can say the right thing. But David doesn't just say it. He shows it through a very difficult circumstance. Look at verse 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He forgives him. There's grace. But nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. We forget sometimes, and this is really, this is really where I think our theology in theory comes up against our Christian living in practice. We forget that the wages of sin is death. God is pretty clear about that. God does forgive David. He doesn't take his life, but it doesn't mean that the sin just gets swept under the rug. The child, the son of his sin, he will die. And right away, God himself afflicts the child. Now, question for you. Something to think about. Is this fair? Or to kind of put it in Christian lingo, in a spiritual sense, would you say that God is good when you hear about things like this? If you were David, if you were in his shoes, in his sandals, how would you respond to your punishment? This is beyond everything that he said earlier. Okay, yeah, you're going to have some trouble in your house. Yeah, maybe you're going to have some adultery or something. But right away, his son is afflicted. How would you respond? And remember, how you would respond says all you need to know about what you really think of God. How does David respond? Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, the same God who afflicted the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. David goes all out seeking the mercy and grace of God. He doesn't stop. He doesn't eat. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. This is a little significant because on the eighth day, the child would be circumcised and given a name. So even before he is given any of that, he dies. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him. He did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. They know how upset he is about this. Verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself. And he changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. See, David seeks the God who afflicts his son. David worships the God who took his son. 
He worshiped the God who pronounced judgment on him. He worshiped the God who didn't answer his pleas and his fasting and his begging for mercy and grace with a yes. Keep reading. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. They don't get it. Verse 22. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And there's a lot in here. But David understands two things. This is what we see most clearly. One, he understands that the Lord's judgments are righteous. Do you see that? He understands that the Lord's judgments are righteous. When God decides what he's going to do, he doesn't fight it. Second, he understands that grace by definition is undeserved. And you know it because afterwards he says, who knows if God will be gracious. I didn't know. But now that he's decided, he has peace. And it's here that we see the heart of David. You know, when I first started preaching, the very first sermon I preached at an actual Sunday service, not some like side college group thing, no offense to them or me, my younger self, but the very first sermon I ever preached on a Sunday was about David and Bathsheba. I was assigned it. Okay, I think Eric got David and Goliath. That's cool. Um, But I had um, this... I had this, and I remember thinking, how does this show that David is a man after God's own heart? But I realized here that we see something different of David, something that we have to see. We see the heart of David, the one that we were told is different. But we learn here that it's not that David's perfect, because no one is. It's not that David is just better, and that's all there is to it. It's not that David is sinless. It's that David, in his sin, knows God. And his response demonstrates that. See, how do you follow up with your failures? Well, I'm just never going to fail again. We can't say that. How do you follow up with your failures? How do you respond to rebuke when someone calls you out? How do you respond when your life doesn't match up to the word of God? Well, do you know God like David does? John 16, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you have conviction in your heart, then you have the Holy Spirit. David proves something here, something we were never sure of with Saul. Even from the beginning, he proves that he knows the living God, that the spirit of God himself dwells within him. Do you want to know if you're really a Christian? A lot of people struggle with that. You want to know? It's not that you are a perfectly moral person. That is impossible before glory. Rather, it's can you admit your sin when you're confronted with it? And two, can you accept God's judgment as being righteous? For God is righteous. If you can answer yes to those two questions, it means that there is life in you. That you know God truly And you know yourself, at least enough, because God is perfect. You know what David wrote in Psalm 9-6 at a different time? He said that God gives righteous judgment. Some of you might have questions about God afflicting the child of David. 
as a side note, the Bible never outright says, says that um, babies go to heaven. But there's good biblical evidence, I think, that infants who die before they can have faith are saved by God and go to be with him. We can talk more about this later. In fact, you can talk to Eric about it. He's the smart one here. But there's a hope that David has here. If you look at the text, he says, I will go to him. He won't return to me. And David, you know what he believed. He said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David understood that one day he would go to be with the Lord in some way. So there is some hope here, but don't focus on that. That's not the point of this text, because if you read the entire thing in context, you understand that David's hope ultimately is not in seeing his child again, even though he loves this kid. Understand that at the end of the day, David submits himself to God and whatever he chooses to do. That's real conviction. That's a real relationship with God. So before we go to the third point, and then we'll finish this, what's your relationship like with God? What's your relationship like with God? All the other things that we do, they really are secondary to this one important subject. What is your relationship with God? All the ministries, all the serving, all the service, all these things, they're secondary. Your marriage, your parenting, it's secondary to you before Almighty God. Is God God to you? Or do you take issue with the things he does as if he answers to you in some way? If you really want to know your own heart, think about the last time you didn't hear what you wanted to hear and think about the last time you didn't get what you wanted to get. How did you respond? We saw how David did. And this leads to the third and final point, the restoration, the restoration, which is about appreciating God's grace. Originally, I was just going to end here, but I think that this is an important bookend to the entire story of David and Bathsheba. So step back for a second as we start to land this plane. Let me tell you a quick story. I served with this guy in church a long time ago. And then a few years back, after I had already started, uh, been part of, a, uh, after I already moved here for Zoe and we started this church, I found out that he left his wife uh, and his family for another woman at work. And uh, if he listens to this, I honestly don't care. I hope he, he hears what I have to say um, because I think it's really bad. He has a couple of kids and it's so sad. I remember distinctly, having dinner with him and his wife way back in the day. Uh, and they were expecting their first kid. And they were talking to me about baby names. And it was like really exciting and a good time. And now if I see him, he's like left his whole family and all of that. Anyway, when friends at church told him, please don't do this, right? This is wrong. You know what he said? He said, even if it's wrong, God will forgive me. Think about that. Even if it's wrong, God will forgive me because that's who God is. There's that famous quote by that one guy who said, God, of course, you'll forgive me for my life. That's his job. And this is how some people think God is gracious. Therefore, my sin can't be that big of a deal at the end of the day. But sin is a big deal to my friend's wife, to his daughter, to his son. It's a big deal. Or go back to Nathan's story. At the beginning of this passage, do you think sin was a big deal to the poor man who loved that stolen and slaughtered lamb like a daughter? Or go back to the original story I started with. Do you think the Nazi sin was a big deal to people who suffered from them? You know, there's a book called The Sunflower. It was written by Simon Wiesenthal about his experience being in a concentration camp. Um, he survived, but 89 of his relatives were killed and he tells this crazy story, man, uh, where he was in the concentration camp and then someone was like, hey, 
um, you're a Jewish person. We want you to uh, come in here real quick. So he was like, okay, I don't know what this is about. And there was a dying SS soldier who wanted to talk to anyone who was Jewish. Um, and he said, my name is Carl. I want to tell you about something terrible, about the things I've done. I'm dying. I, I need to confess to, to someone before I pass away. And out of his mouth, he just started talking about all these terrible things that they had done, these atrocities that he himself had committed. And he said, I needed to tell you because you are Jewish. Can you forgive me? Will you be gracious? And Wiesenthal, a prisoner, honestly, he didn't know what to do. I mean, he knew what, you know, he should do maybe, you know, what the, the Old Testament would call him to do. But finally, after a long pause, he made up his mind. And without a single word, he walked out and he let the man die in his guilt. Now go back to the story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 now. Think about what David did. Let it sit with you. The utter selfishness, the heartless callousness, the lives lost, the woman who's just waiting for her husband to come home from war, the loyal soldier who would do anything for the king, the king, the king was supposed to be better. I mean, just think about it. And then don't put yourself in his sandals now. You don't need to be sympathetic to him. Put yourself, if you can, as much as you can within the confines of this text, put yourself in God's position. God is showing us his perspective. Look through it. The God who cares for the widow and the orphan, the God who created the world to be perfect, but now it's this the God who loved David as a son and gave him so much only to see him abuse the throne and squander his position and hurt the people God had entrusted to him. You heard what God said, didn't you? At the end of it too, he said, you have despised me. So what does God do? He enacts mathematical justice, an eye for an eye, a sword for a sword, a wife for a wife, a life for a life. And if we have any heart for those who have suffered greatly, we would say, thank God that he is a God who actually cares about doing what's right. At least there's some justice in the world. But here's a question for you guys. Is it fair? Would you say that God is good, spiritually speaking? And maybe you say, yes, absolutely. Well, if you say yes, absolutely, and we look into the mirror of what God's word is, then what about us? We look into the scripture and we see a reflection of the sins of David in our own hearts. Maybe not murder, hopefully not, but anger in our hearts, which Jesus said might as well be. We look into the reflection of God's word and we see maybe not adultery, but we see lust and we see that we look not that different. And like I asked last week, are you afraid? Because if you know God, then you should be. But there's a little bit more. Verse 24. Then David comforted, notice, his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the first time Bathsheba is called David's wife. And they have another son. And Nathan shows up again, but instead of condemnation, he brings congratulation. This son is Solomon, and we find out later that he is the one who will carry on the promise. 
that though he is born to a man and a woman who should have never been husband and wife, God is the God who brings beauty out of ashes. And God gives him the name Jedediah, which basically means God's favorite. I mean, it's beloved of the Lord, but it's basically like, this is my favorite guy. Not because of anything he's done, but because God is gracious. And then what happens? An epilogue, but an important bookend to the story in David's life. Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Okay, so we might have forgotten, kind of mired in the details, but the war is still going on. People are fighting. A ton of people have no idea that this is happening within the walls of the palace. Life has been moving forward. And Joab is about to win, but he sends for the king. He says, you should be here. And he really should have been there that whole time, remember? But this time, David, instead of staying home, he goes. Verse 30. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And a lot of times you read this and you think, what? What's the point of this? Why do we need all these details? The text is showing us emphatically that David is still king. He will be king. The promise isn't broken. I mean, if you notice the last sentence of this chapter, then David and all the people return to Jerusalem. On the surface, if you think about, uh, think about it, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 could have been another one of those flyover passages in second samuel we've had some of those david just fought this war and then he won let's move on to the next thing in terms of the history and the politics here the military uh significance none of the stuff going on on inside the palace really made a dent in what was happening outside of the palace do you understand this and we end up exactly where we started outwardly on the surface but we know because we've been here through the 11th and 12th chapter, that even though everything looks the same, spiritually, everything has changed. Because, let me explain this to you. Now, David knows something, and we know something, because we've seen it, that maybe we weren't sure about before. Now we all know for sure that David is king, not because he deserves it. David doesn't deserve any of this. The promise isn't based on merit. It's based on grace. It's all grace. It always was. Do we understand? Because if we do, then we know this. And maybe we just needed to be reminded. But know this. The fact that you have a family, that you have a job, that you have friends, a church, a fact that you can talk and get around and laugh and cry, the very fact that you are alive right now as a sinner it preaches and declares God's grace. When you realize and reckon with what you deserve for what you've done and who you are, and then realize and reckon with what you've been given because of God, that's the kind of good news that changes people, that transforms hearts and makes dry bones live. And how can God do this? Again, is it fair? 
Would you say God is good to do these things? Go back to the first sentence of this chapter. It says, God did what he sent. God sent. How can God be gracious to people like us? How can God forgive the murderer and the adulterer? God sent. But not just a prophet, more than a prophet. He sent his only son, the beloved Lamb of God, who came to live the perfect life that none of us could. And he himself was slaughtered and given for us in our place. He was tortured, not just for the tortured, but for the torturer. Do you see this? He died in the place of those who deserve death, us, so that we could live. And if you ever had a question about how just and righteous God is, look to that cross where Jesus bore the wrath of God. And if you ever had a question about how gracious and merciful God is, look to the cross where Jesus poured out the grace and mercy of God. We'll close with this. The soldier that I talked about in the beginning, he was in despair over his part and what the Nazis had done. But then someone gave him a Bible and he started to read. And he was German, a lot of cultural Christians in Germany. He had heard a lot of these things before, most likely, but all of it struck him in a different way especially the story of Christ crucified, the God who would take on suffering and shame for sinners. Could it be true? Honestly, when he was sitting in prison 22, he felt like maybe it was too good to be true. It can't be real. But in 1947, he was allowed to attend a Christian event, bringing together believers from all over the world. The Dutch Christians there had specifically asked for German POWs to be invited. He was excited on the one hand, but on the other, his feelings of fear, guilt, and shame intensified because he knew how they had suffered. And at this conference, he met these Dutch brothers and sisters, and he was horrified to hear about how World War II had gone for them, how Hitler had inflicted such pain on their people. But then they simply said they were willing to forgive. And it was like everything, Jürgen, that was his name, had read in the Bible, came to life right then and there. And he realized that it was really true after all, that there is a grace that is greater than all our sin, that there is a mercy that is more than the wrongs that we have done. See, guys, you got to understand something. Understand that in the daytime, you can see the stars if you're in a deep well. Do you guys know this? The deeper you go, the brighter the stars shine. And the deeper we go into admitting who we really are, into taking the criticism and the rebuke and the correction and the discipline, the deeper we go into admitting our sin and our faults and our parts in all the wrongs that have been done, the brighter this grace and this mercy will shine. Don't run from conviction. Embrace it. And then run to him. And then you will know what it truly means that his name is the name that is above every other name. Jesus, it means Lord, the Lord is salvation. And when this becomes real to us, everything, I promise you, will change. We will see lives turn around. We will see sinners saved, marriages restored, people from all walks of life raising their hands in worship, not because we're great, but because he is. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to give you a, a moment to seek the Lord on your own. I don't know exactly where you're at, but God does. There's something you need to confess. Or maybe you're just broken over your sin and you need to receive grace and mercy. 
Just know that repentance is a gift to us, that we can turn around, that we can change. Father, we know that there is no hope that we have outside of Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that we don't deserve mercy and grace. And yet, Father, when we look to the cross and we see our Lord and our Savior dying there for us, bearing your wrath against sin for us, God, we are moved. And we remember that your mercy and grace while not deserved are real. And God, I pray that you would deepen us. God, this is where the heart of our ministry should be, the heart of our evangelism, the heart of our marriages, the heart of our lives, where we know that we are great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. All glory to him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.